0: Welcome Ankle Biters. You stumbled onto Firefires Far-fetched Fables. The home of tall tales, old chestnuts, fish stories, and other unassorted yarns. We mostly cater to the young ones here, but you grown-ups can have a listen too. If you have a mind to, tap on the subscribe button, whatever that is, or like us on the Facebook. In the meantime. Turn off the TV, put down the cell phone, get yourself a glass of warm milk, and settle in for some old-time storytelling. Tonight's episode. Chapter 5. Paul's Camp in Maine. Paul's first task, after he and the seven axemen had finally come to the place in the Deacon's Woods where he intended to build his camp was to get rid of the gumbaroos and agro-pelters. So while the axemen all seated themselves, leaned their backs comfortably against the broad tree trunks and lit their pipes, Paul stood thinking out some method of driving the troublesome creatures away. Paul was a great thinker, and there was never any problem that could keep him puzzled for long. The gumbaroos are afraid of fire, he said to himself and they, they will run, run away if they notice even, notice even the slightest, slightest sign of it. Now, that I is a weakness we that I ought, ought to be able to, be able to use against them. them. But how? And he thought so hard over the matter that the seven axemen could hear the low whir of his brain working. Just then, a big cloud of smoke from one of the axemen's pipes floated up and encircled Paul's head. And when he finally stopped coughing and had caught his breath again, a look of great satisfaction spread over his face. He had figured out a way to drive the gumbaroos away. I want you bullies to rest up for a few days, he said to the seven axemen, and there was a twinkle in his eyes. There's plenty of hard work on the job ahead, but I'm not quite ready for you to start on it yet. So just you sit around and take things easy for a while until I am ready for you to begin. And he tossed down his big tobacco pouch where all could reach and sauntered away. The seven axe men looked at one another and grinned and then proceeded to fill up their pipes again. If their new boss wanted to pay them their wages just for loafing, why, they were perfectly willing to accommodate him. They had often looked forward to such times as this, when they might take their ease and talk and smoke together, all without being worried by the thought that they were leaving necessary tasks undone or were losing valuable working time. Never before had the opportunity of indulging in such fancied leisure come to them, and now they settled back to enjoy themselves to the fullest extent. Many were the subjects which they discussed, and great the problems which they settled. Countless were the tales of woodland adventure which they told, and mighty were the labors each performed in the telling. Oh, wonderful men, those seven axe men, wonderful in brain as well as in muscle. So tireless were their minds that they could listen to the same joke a hundred times a day and laugh each time harder than the last. And all the time, while they rested, they smoked their pipes, wonderful old pipes, which they had used constantly through many, many, many years. Each one used up two bushels of tobacco every time it was filled. And by the time the second day had come to an end, the contents of Paul's tobacco pouch were almost half gone. The smoke hung over the land like a cloud, and for hundreds of miles there was not a gumbaroo to be found in the woods. The fierce creatures, sniffing the strangling smoke which filled the air, had been fooled into thinking that a terrible fire was raging through the forest. Frightened nearly out of their wits, they had scrambled away as fast as they could roll. No one knows how far they went ere their flight ceased for they were never seen nor heard of again in that part of the country. Getting rid of the agropelters was the next task, and this required a little more work. Paul called the seven axe men to him, and they were very glad to put away their pipes and gather around him. They had smoked so much that their tongues were sore, and their two-day rest had grown so tiresome that they were anxious to get back to the hard work again. These agripelters all hide away in the hollows of dead trees, Paul told them. Now I want you to get your axes and wander through the timber. Every time you see a dead tree or one with a hollow in it, chop it down and split it open. After you have done that, we'll start putting up the camp. With a whoop, the seven men set about the task as if it were a great game. Being so large and strong, they had no fear of the animals, and as one blow from their great axes was usually enough to smash even the most hollow, biggest tree into splinters, they worked very fast. It was only a day or so before there was not a hollow tree to be found standing in all Deacon's Timberland, and with their hiding places all gone, the agro-pelters also fled far away. Paul was very much pleased that the woods were now safe for ordinary men, and he praised the Seven Axe Men highly for their work. He set them to putting up bunkhouses and stables and the cook shanty for the new camp, and he ordered the little chore boy to carry the word far and near that now, since the dangerous animals were all driven out of the woods, he would be giving high pay that winter To all loggers who cared to join his crew. Men soon began drifting into camp from every direction and Paul hired all the best ones. A man had to be extra good to get a job with Paul Bunyan, but even so it wasn't very long before he had gathered together as sturdy a bunch of woodsmen as has ever been seen. It was along about this time that he made the trip back to town where he saw the deacon again and arranged all the little matters that were so far unsettled regarding the work. And when he started on his return trip to camp, he was accompanied by Ole the smith. Ole, or the big Swede, as he was quite often called, was a slow-witted but amiable chap whose mind could never hold more than one idea at a time. He was gigantic in size, though not as big as Paul and was a past master in all that had to do with his trade of metalworking. From the first, he regarded Paul with a liking that was almost worship, and next to Paul in his affections came Babe, the great blue ox. Indeed, so remarkable was his admiration for the magnificent animal that Paul at once turned over to him the duty of caring for Babe which task he gladly accepted, and continued to perform through many years. When finally his work as Smith began to demand all of his time, he reluctantly turned Babe over to the gentle ministrations of Brimstone Bill. But that did not happen until quite a long while later. Paul had taken the Blue Ox with him to town, and there he loaded him with all the supplies that would be needed for the camp "'and the crew during the winter. "'When everything had been packed on Babe's back, "'the animal was so heavily laden "'that on the way back to camp, "'he sank to his knees in the solid rock "'at nearly every step. "'These footprints were later filled with water "'and became the countless lakes "'which are to be found today "'scattered throughout the state of Maine. "'Babe was compelled to go slowly, of course, "'on account of the great load he carried.' and so Paul had to camp overnight along the way. He took the packs from the ox's back, turned the big animal out to graze, and after eating supper, he and Ole lay down to sleep. The blue ox, however, was for some strange reason in a restless mood that night, and after feeding all that he cared to, he wandered away for many miles before he finally found a place that suited his particular idea of what a bedding ground should be. There he lay down, and it is quite possible that he was very much amused in thinking of the trouble which his master would have in finding him the next morning. The ox was a very wise creature, and every now and then he liked to play a little joke on Paul. Along about dawn, Paul Bunyan awoke and looked about for his pet. Not a glimpse of him could he get in any direction, though he whistled so loudly for him that the nearby trees were shattered into bits. At last, after he and Ole had eaten their breakfast and Babe still did not appear, Paul knew that the joke was on him. He thinks he has put up a little trick on me, he said to Ole with a grin. You go ahead and make up the packs again while I play hide-and-seek for a while. And as the big Swede started gathering everything together again, he set off trailing the missing animal. Babe's tracks were so large that it took three men standing close together to see across one of them, and they were so far apart that no one could follow them but Paul, who was an expert trailer, no one else ever being able to equal him in this ability. So remarkable was he in this respect that he could follow any tracks that were ever made, no matter how old or how faint they were it is told of him that he once came across the carcass of a bull moose that had died of old age, and having a couple of hours to spare, and being also of an inquiring turn of mind, he followed the tracks of the bull moose back to the place where it had been born. Being such an expert, therefore, it did not take him very long to locate Babe. The great blue ox, when he at last came across him, was lying down contentedly, chewing his cud, and waiting for his master to come and find him. You worthless critter, Paul said to him, and thwacked him good-naturedly with his hand, look at the trouble you have put me to, and just look at the damage you have done here. And he pointed to the great hollow place in the ground, which Babe had wallowed out while lying there. The ox's only reply was to smother Paul for a moment with a loving, juicy lick of his great tongue, and then together they set off to where Ole was waiting for them. Anyone, by looking at a map of the state of Maine, can easily locate Moosehead Lake, which is, as history shows, the place where the great blue ox lay down. By the time that Paul, Ole, and Babe arrived at the logging camp, the first snow had begun to fall, and Paul began to work in earnest. He organized his crew so that each gang of men had a certain task to do, and the rules he developed here and used in his later logging operations have been followed more or less in all lumber camps ever since. For instance, in the Great Lakes states, where the lumber industry probably reached its highest development, the work of the average logging crew was done much in this way. A gang of choppers would first go through the woods, clearing the way. After them would come the sawyers, one man carrying an axe for marking the direction of each tree's fall and a wedge to use, if necessary, in guiding it, while two others would fell the tree with a cross-cut saw. Paul was the inventor of the two-man saw used in logging, and Ole made up a number of his plans for use in his camps. The saw, having done its work, as the tree began to topple, the sawyers would get back out of the way, giving a loud yell, "Timber!" as a warning to anyone else nearby. And the great trunk would come swishing and crashing to the ground. Then would come the scaler, who would measure the fallen trees into the proper log lengths, and the sawyers would cut them at his marks. Next. The skidding crew, or swampers, would clear the way for the teamsters, who would drag or haul the logs to the stagings by the stream. Winter was always best for logging, for then the logs could be easily skidded over the icy roads which had been made slippery by sprinkling water on them until they were paved with hard and solid ice. At the stream, the deckers would pile the logs on the skidways, from which in the spring, when the freshets filled the stream with swift water, they would be dumped to float down river on the big drive. When the time of the drive came, the entire crew would join in following it, riding the logs with cocked boots and carrying pike pole or peavey, fighting jams and snaking stranded logs off the banks all along the way. When the logs finally reached the booms of the sawmill, toward which they were headed, the logger's work was over and he usually celebrated by ending the drive in a grand and glorious manner, fighting out old grudges accumulated during the winter and otherwise enjoying himself. That is something of the way a logging crew usually works. Of course, Paul had the help of the remarkable Babe and of such mighty woodsmen as the seven axemen, and he did things in his own peculiar way which no one else could hope to imitate. In the main, however, the camp's later years were organized much after the fashion that he established. No one, certainly, could be expected to copy him in the manner of straightening out the crooked logging trails. It was all wild country where Paul did his logging, and about the only roads which he found through the woods were the trails and paths made by the wild animals that had traveled over them for hundreds of years. Paul decided to use these game trails as logging roads, but they twisted and turned in every direction and were all so crooked that they had to be straightened before any use could be made of them. It is well known that the great blue ox was so powerful that he could pull anything that had two ends, and so, when Paul wanted a crooked logging trail straightened out, he would just hitch babe up to one end of it tell his pet to go ahead, and lo and behold, the crooked trail would be pulled out perfectly straight. There was one particularly bad stretch of road, about 20 or 30 miles long, that gave Babe and Paul a lot of trouble before they finally got all the crooks pulled out of it. It certainly must have been the crookedest road in the world. It twisted and turned so much that it spelled out every letter of the alphabet. Some of the letters, Two or three times. Paul taught Babe how to read just by leading him over it a few times, and the men going along it met themselves coming from the other direction so often that the whole camp was near crazy before long. So Paul decided that the road would have to be straightened out without any further delay, and with that end in view, he ordered Ole to make for him the strongest chain he knew how. The big Swede set to work with a will, and when the chain was completed, it had lengths four feet long and two feet across, and the steel they were made of was thirteen inches thick. The chain being ready, Paul hitched Babe up to one end of the road with it. At his master's word, the great blue ox began to puff and pull and strain away, as he had never done before, and at last he got the end pulled out a little ways. Paul tripped to him again, and he pulled away harder than ever. With every tug he made, one of the twists in the road would straighten out, and then Babe would pull away again, hind legs straight out behind and belly to the ground. It was the hardest job Babe had ever been put up against, but he stuck to it most admirably. When the task was finally done, the ox was nearly fagged out, a condition that he'd never known before, and that big chain had been pulled on so hard that it was pulled out into a solid steel bar. The road was straightened out, however, which was the thing Paul wanted, and he considered the time and energy expended as well worthwhile since the nuisance had been transformed into something useful. He found, though, that since all the kinks and twists had been pulled out, There was now a whole lot more of the road than was needed, but, never being a person who could stand to waste anything which might be useful, he rolled up all the extra length and had it laid down in a place where there had never been a road before, but where one might come in handy sometime. Nor was straightening of the crooked roads the only useful work which the great blue ox did. It was also his task to skid or drag the logs from the stumps, to the rollways by the streams, where they were stored for the drives. Babe was always obedient, and a tireless and patient worker. It is said that the timber of nineteen states, except a few scant sections here and there, which Paul Bunyan did not touch, was skidded from the stumps by the all-powerful great blue ox. He was docile and willing, and could be depended on for the performance of almost any task set him, except that once in a while he would develop a sudden streak of mischief and drink a river dry behind a drive or run off into the woods. Sometimes he would step on a ridge that formed the bank of the river and smash it down so that the river would start running out through the tracks, thus changing its course entirely from what Paul had counted on. The cutting of the deacon's timber tract went ahead so fast that Paul began looking ahead and wondering what he would do next. He was very much gratified to find that his fame had already begun to spread, so that he was offered enough logging contracts to keep him busy in that section of the country for several years to come. He was never one to shirk a task, was Paul. And the assurance of having ahead of him all the work that he could do made him happy indeed. And with that, we come to the end of chapter five. Not a bad story so far, but there's plenty more and you won't want to miss the next episode of Firefire's far, far Fables on this here podcast channel. In the meantime, mind your manners at the dinner table and always help your mom clean up the dishes, you little rascals.